Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. This is our Women's World Cup podcast with me and Sports Illustrated's Lakin Littman. We'll be publishing podcast episodes after every U.S. game during the tournament. I'll also be interviewing Eniola Aluko, who's doing terrific work during this tournament for Fox Sports. While we've got you, make sure to check out our podcast series, Throwback, on the origin stories of the U.S. Women's National Team and the FIFA Women's World Cup. That's Throwback. Promise you won't regret it. Onward! Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. All right, let's bring in Lakin Littman, USA 2, England 1, US in the World Cup final on the women's side for the third straight time. Lakin, how are you? I'm good, Grant. How are you? Uh, as I just mentioned to you before we started recording, I'm hungry. But more <laughs> importantly than that, I'm excited to cover the final uh, USA against either Sweden or the Netherlands on Sunday. But let's talk about this game tonight. Um, tough, hard game uh, for the U.S. And they end up pulling it out. Listen there, makes a huge penalty kick save late to keep it at 2-1. to one. VAR helps out the U.S. Uh, after it, it looked like it was 2-2, two, two, but... Uh, Ellen White was just offside. Um, Were you pretty worried during these moments? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's like, 
heading into this game, you know, it's like yesterday there's all the British tabloid fodder and it's like it just kind of seems a little bit light. You know, it doesn't have the kind of anticipation that, you know, the USA France quarterfinal had and, you know, Phil Neville's making the comments and all this stuff. And and then, you know, first we find out Megan Rapinoe's not playing and you're kind of like, wait, what? Like. Now what's going to happen? But then you remember the U.S. is stacked with depth and Kristen Press is filling in and she scores, you know, within the first 10 minutes. And, you know, but then England quickly equalizes and you're like, okay, well, this is this game's going to be for real. And um, it just turned into a, a game from there. I mean, Alex Morgan obviously scored what ended up being the decisive goal before halftime. But the second half was, I mean, that that probably worried a lot of U.S. fans. I mean, as you yeah. said, like the goal that got called back and then Alyssa Nair, everyone's biggest question mark is the player of the game. We came through, had her shining moment of this World Cup. Yeah, I mean, one thing I said about Alyssa Nair coming into this tournament was just because of the history of it all, this is the first World Cup the U.S. has had a, a goalkeeper other than Hope Solo or Brianna Scurry starting since 1991, which is kind of crazy to think about. And we simply didn't have an opportunity ever in a major tournament to see how Alyssa Nair would respond. And I guess one thing I, I sort of thought heading into the tournament was she may also get the opportunity to really have a moment, to have a defining moment. And she got that tonight. And I think that's maybe the biggest story of the night that Alyssa Nair made this huge penalty kick save. And yes, Steph Houghton didn't look confident taking it and didn't take a great penalty, but it still had to get saved. And to do it in that moment with just a few minutes left in the game when the momentum was entirely with England at that point, as it had been for most of the second half, um, just a really impressive uh, performance there by Alyssa Nair, who also made a very big stop on a shot right after the U.S. had made it two to one. Yeah, and that um, goal, I mean, that that shot was, I mean, that could have been one of the best, had it gone in, one of the best goals of the tournament. That was a rocket. Yeah, and, and so for, for Nair to come up that big, it's just such a huge moment for her. And you saw at the end of the game when the whistle blew, the U.S. players all ran toward Nair so like they can say what they want about how they haven't we haven't noticed questions about Alyssa Nair of course they've noticed that's why they ran out the way they did but um it's pretty cool to see a player come up so big like that in a, in a truly defining moment of a world cup um you mentioned Rapino not starting uh, she did tell us after the game she uh had a mild hamstring strain that happened late in the France game uh, she expects to be ready for Sunday's final, uh, and she'll have four full off days now to, to rest up and get ready for that. Uh, Rose Lavelle said that uh, even though she appeared to have a hamstring issue that brought her out of this game, which I thought she played very well, by the way, um, that she would be fine and ready for Sunday as well. So, um, you know, for the first time in this tournament, the U.S. is finally going to have a chance to have more rest than its opponent will in the next game, because that hasn't happened at all in any of the previous games. Um, what did you think in, in terms of Alex Morgan tonight getting back on the scoring sheet for the first time since game one against Thailand and doing it with what ended up being the game-winning goal? Yeah, um, I thought it was funny that she did this on her 30th birthday. They asked her, I saw on the Fox... <laughs> 
broadcast like how so how does this compare to other birthdays and she just she just laughed and was like it's a pretty good birthday I'd say um but yeah I mean she has to feel relieved in some way right like she was on a four game scoring drought and to come through in the semifinal and score the game winning goal really um, you know, she just hadn't really looked, we had talked about, she hadn't really looked right the last few games. I mean, she played well, obviously, against France, and she set up both of the goals that propelled the U.S. to beat France, of course. But, you know, she didn't play against Chile, got knocked around against Sweden. She was pretty much on the ground, like, the whole game against Spain and was clearly very frustrated. And, you know, when, when you have these individual goals at least to come into the world cup and play your best and score however many goals and you're not doing that it's got to be frustrating um so you know heading into the final now she's got a ton of momentum and confidence going and you know she also had to step up with rapino out i felt like and act like the star that you know that she you know is so i thought that she did all the things that she needed to do and And the way that she scored, that whole play, the way that it manifested was, it was like, it was perfect, I thought. I really liked both of the U.S. goals tonight, by the way. Um, You know, just a lot of the little things. So, like, the dummy that Lavelle had on the first goal that sent the ball clean through to Kelly O'Hara, who hit just a perfect cross Mm -hmm. to press for that header. I haven't seen Kristen Press score too many goals with her head in the past, by the way. Um and then the second goal just – I think Abby Dahlkemper gets, like, no credit Seriously. at all. But she sent a, a terrific diagonal ball that she's very good at, and she's done a few times in this tournament, um, to press, who then hits a short pass to Haran, who then just sort of looks up and sees uh, Morgan making a run. I just thought both of those goals were tremendously well executed. Yeah, I agree. And press is just her – Get it receiving the long ball from Dal Kemper. That control was just impressive. I mean, when you have a player closing on you and then she gets it to her hand quickly, it was just all set up so perfectly. Yeah. I mean, after the game tonight, um, I asked Kristen Press um, about what what scoring this goal meant. And then I, I had noted that she, after she had scored, looked up to the sky. And if you follow Kristen Press on social media, uh, it appeared that she had lost someone close to her somewhat recently. And I asked her and, and she said she actually lost her mom recently, which um, uh, she was extremely uh, you know, emotional to uh, have that. And um, I felt kind of in a way bad for bringing it up, but not totally because it, it, it's something that was important to her um, and I, I think has been driving her. Uh, in this tournament, but uh, she was terrific tonight. And, and uh, you know, she hasn't always been uh, known as a big game player, but she really produced in a very, very big game for the U.S. And I think all of us know what Kristen Press is capable of when she's in form. And I've always sort of been waiting to see it in a World Cup or an Olympics. And we saw that tonight. So, uh, you know, credit to her. Yeah, agree. It's like when Rapina goes out and everyone at least on Twitter, you could see is, is freaking out. It's like, oh, well, Kristen Press is coming in. Well, what do we know about Kristen Press? It's like, anytime she plays, it feels like she's scoring, making making plays. So she came through and um, came up big tonight. Yeah. Um, 
You know, in the end here, I, I think this was a deserved result, but um, very, very close at times, you know, when you, you see it go 2-2 on the scoreboard, and we hadn't seen VAR much in recent games in this tournament, and then we do see it here. Then we see VAR again on this penalty on, on Sauerbrunn, who some people were asking if she should have gotten a red card uh, because they didn't think she was playing the ball. Um, I, I, do, I still don't know if that was clear and obvious to have to merit VAR coming back in, but the, the phrase we always hear on these types of situations when the penalty then gets saved is, ball don't lie. <laughs> yes. And, uh, ball don't lie in this one. Um, anything else about this, this U.S. team, this performance tonight, England, that sticks out to you? Um, I would say it's just another example of how we've talked so much about the U.S. depth and like joke that it's two starting lineups and one roster. And this was just the exact example of that actually coming to fruition, (laughs) using players that don't start as often and coming in. Um, and and being the reason why being a reason why they won and now I mean because of people players like Press and Haran and um, I mean Lavella started every game but she's still kind of an unknown commodity to a lot of people um, and they are obviously starting in her first World Cup and and then players coming off the bench I mean now the U.S. is going to another World Cup final. It's pretty impressive. Um, if the U- or, well, U.S. did win, which team would you rather play in the final? Are we? Are you looking? Would you prefer to see the Netherlands or, or Sweden? I'm kind of torn here because I would really like to see the matchup against the Netherlands. They've been just a an exciting team to watch uh, with uh, Lake of Martins and and Miedma and to see them go against the U.S. back line, I think would be really fun. On the other hand. You know, when the U.S. played Sweden, Sweden was kind of just, you know, sitting that one out. They were like, oh, we're through to the, the knockout stage. They didn't play all of their starters. Obviously, cowards. Yeah, yeah. Hello, cowards. Hope Solo is going to be there um, <laughs> if they play again. Um, just given the, the rich history. And it's like, I almost feel like if they, if it's U.S.-Sweden again, that would be even more of a revenge game from the Olympics <laughs> because they have like their full roster available. So I don't know, maybe I, the U.S. wants to play Sweden. Well, I'm kind of bummed out that Nilla Fisher didn't start for Sweden in the last game against the U.S. She's actually one of my favorite players in women's soccer just because she is like the toughest player in women's soccer. But um yeah, they didn't have seven starters in that game against the U.S. I still would prefer to see the Netherlands. Um, I think they're a really interesting, fun team uh, that has really risen in the last few years from just making its first World Cup in 2015 to winning the Euro in 2017 to now being in a position to win the World Cup in 2019. And they even they haven't gotten perfect performances out of even their, their front three. They're, I, mm-hmm. uh, I think... Uh, Van Sanden's a good player typically, but she's been sort of poor in this tournament. Um, but Miedema and Martins have, have had their moments. And I, I just would love to see two, four, three, three teams, attacking teams going after each other in the final. And I love the Dutch brass band that travels with oh, them. Oh, the fan base is one of the best. So yes, if we're talking so. purely about that, then let's, <laughs> let's get the Netherlands and the American outlaws against each other. Um, so, interesting thing tonight, there was sort of a subplot. You had 
Ellen White uh, getting to a tournament leading six goals, uh, and then you had Alex Morgan getting to six goals right after that. White gets to seven for a few seconds. That gets wiped off the board. Um, who do you think is going to win the Golden Boot? Who do you think is the tournament's best player right now? Well, I think now with the momentum that we were talking about earlier, Alex Morgan scores one more goal in the finals. She wins the Golden Boot. And that's who we, I think, both predicted to win it um, before the tournament even began. But the player of the tournament, <laughs> I was thinking about it before this game, and I was like, oh, well, obviously it's Megan Rapino, but then she didn't play in this game. But I still don't think you can discount everything that she's done leading up to where putting the U.S. in position to where it is now. I mean, scoring, she has five goals, and we were joking that, oh, she could be in contention for the golden boot. I mean, those two, goal, two goals against Spain, two goals against France, the whole back, well, the whole thing with Trump, not back and forth, but the whole Twitter debacle with President Trump. Um, you know, she's just risen to the occasion every single time that, you know, that there's been a challenge. She's, she's answered it. Um, I think even without playing in this game, we could still maybe make the argument for her. Um, there's no way she's going to miss the final, so we'll see how she plays in that game. But then it was like, I was thinking, I was like, well, can I say Alyssa Nair? Because without her, the U.S. wouldn't even be going maybe to the final. <laughs> but no, I won't, I won't go that far. But I don't know. I feel like overall, Rapino has made the biggest difference. Yeah, I think it should depend on who wins the tournament. If yeah. the U.S. wins, I think... Uh, based on where we are right now, Megan Rapino would still be that choice, though it could be very dependent on who stands out in the final. True. Uh, I, I do think Alex Morgan's probably going to end up winning the golden boot here, though Miedema could go crazy in the semi in the final. Who knows? Um, but um, uh, I'm looking forward to you know this, this one <coughs> last semifinal and then one last final. It should be a fun few days here. Um, Let's see if we have any other questions. Oh, yes, in other news, how do we feel about France and Germany missing the Olympics next year? Yeah, that is a horrible process. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, how could two of the top five teams in the world not be going to the Olympics based on, you know, chance at, from the Women's World Cup? I mean, they should, exp I mean, they should expand the field so that this kind of thing doesn't cool. happen. In the future, just, I mean, to yeah, not have those it's, two it's really global powers. So, like, very quick background on this is uh, the Olympic women's soccer tournament, obviously, is next year in Japan. Um, and uh, the top three European teams from the World Cup get automatic berths in the Olympics the following year. And that's simply based on how far do you go in the World Cup. And it doesn't really take into account the draw, which was really unfortunate for France, they drew the U.S. in the quarterfinals. And so France is out of the World Cup or, or the Olympics for next year. Germany is out after losing to Sweden. And the three European teams that will be in the Olympics are England, uh, I'm sorry, Great Britain, um, Sweden, and the Netherlands. And there's two big problems here. One, that the IOC needs to start having more than 12 women's teams in the tournament, at least 16 like the men's do, but the men's Olympic tournament's kind of not taken that seriously anyway. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have an issue if it was a 24 team tournament for the women and 16 for the men, because at least with the women, you get the best players in the world. Right. Um, and then I think it's also 
an issue that UEFA decides not to have some sort of qualifying situation uh, tournament-wise for determining who advances to the Olympics. And all these people at UEFA say, oh, well, we have full qualifying campaigns for the World Cup and the Euro, and therefore we don't have time to play an Olympic qualifying tournament. But they could take merely the teams, the European teams that made it to the Women's World Cup this time and have like a really short tournament that could take like a really short amount of time and they could figure out their entrance in a much much fairer way that would make for a better Olympic tournament. I, I am less excited about next year's Olympics now that France and Germany won't be there. That's a great idea. Yeah, I mean, like that's just... They want people to watch the Olympics, I imagine. Right. Like, I mean, you're kind of steering people away from it. It's like, uh, uh, do I really want to watch the U.S. play Sweden again? I mean, it's just you'd rather see you'd rather see those power those global powers in there. So they should they need to make a change. Yeah. Um, so last question for you: What are you interested to see about what happens in the coming days with the U.S. team ahead of the final? I'm sorry, repeat that. What are you interested in seeing, like, what's most on your mind in the next few days with the U.S. team leading into the final? Well, what's I, I mean, I don't have any qualms about their togetherness. I mean, they're going to be, they're, they've always, they've been in this bubble this whole entire World Cup, and it's just like you have this one more game left mentality and um, Jill Ellis said something after the game along those lines, like that was great, but you know, do it again on on Sunday. Obviously, like just stay humble, which I feel like this team will. But I don't know if you read the um, the Sue Bird Players Tribune piece yes. she wrote, which was really great about Megan Rapino, and she shared like a fun anecdote at the end about something that Megan did at halftime of the 2015. World Cup final when they're up four to one, you know, they end up crushing Japan. But while everyone's serious, she comes out and says, like, we're going to win the World Cup. So I guess I'm kind of interested. Is this team going to allow themselves to I mean, they're going to be serious, but are they going to allow themselves to have a little bit of fun, you know, be a little bit not relaxed, but kind of like that kind of Rapino mindset a little bit, especially since she is, you know, the true heart and soul of this team. Whereas, you know, four years ago, it was more Abby Wambach and Carly Lloyd leading the charge. Um, so I guess kind of like how they approach that. Um, they seem like a really fun loving group um, that, you know, is very into that 23 mentality, but um, are they also going to let, you know, not let the moment escape them and, and enjoy it and have fun with it. Yeah, I think they will. I mean, like, I think they found a good balance in this tournament of taking their opponents seriously, but also like having some fun with their goal celebrations. Alex Morgan right. did tonight with her little uh, <laughs> tea ceremony after scoring against England, which I thought was great. So um, I think they'll be ready for that. I think it's pretty incredible that, this is the third straight Women's World Cup final for the U.S. You, you never know if you'll be in a, a final like this in your entire career. And so for some of these players, it's their third. Um, but they also know from 2011 that just because they're going to be favored doesn't mean they're going to win. And uh, I, I think they're going to come out with a real attitude to score early like they did uh, like they've done in every single game of this every tournament, game. but also like they did in the 2015 final against Japan. Yeah, that stat with 
the U.S. has scored in the first 12 minutes of every single game this World Cup is, I mean, not surprising when you think about it, but also like, whoa, that's... That's fast. They get off to these. It's just, <laughs> it's just absolutely ruthless, and it's one thing to do against Thailand. It's another yeah. thing to do against uh, top teams like France and England. So yes. uh, looking forward to it, and always a pleasure to speak to you, Lake. You too, Grant. Thanks. Big thanks to Lake and Littman. Next up is my interview with Eniola Luco of Fox Sports. Our guest today is Eniola Luco, who has played in three World Cups for England, currently plays for Juventus, and is doing terrific work for Fox Sports during the Women's World Cup. She also has a memoir coming out called They Don't Teach This, Lessons from the Game of Life. That comes out August 29th. Any, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Grant. Thank you for having me. It has been an absolute pleasure getting to know you a little bit during this tournament and work yeah. with you. Um, we are recording this on the Sunday before the USA-England semifinal, and unfortunately this is coming out after that game, so <laughs> uh, instead of breaking down the matchups, um, what I want to ask you about England is how did England take the next step forward, upward in the women's game over the past five years to become truly one of the world's elite teams? Um, I think it, I think the Olympics was a big kickstarter for, mm -hmm. for the game in England. Um, I think that prior to that, there was a lot of um, semi-professional teams that were sort of paying at lip service, if you like, mm -hmm. that weren't taking the game seriously. Certainly from a Chelsea perspective, um, I mean, we didn't have a professional setup per se. We were training at the training ground, but we were training at, in the evening at eight o'clock at night on the AstroTurf. If we were lucky, we had the whole AstroTurf. Sometimes we had half the AstroTurf. Oh, wow. We didn't have water bottles. We d it just wasn't, it wasn't something that was taken seriously. After the Olympics, I think all the major teams had a eureka moment and thought, well, hold on a second, there's something in this. If we invest in the women's game, it's a, it's a win from a, public relations perspective and then we can also engage with a, a wider fan base and it became a trend and as you can see um, just in this tournament when there's major investment in the professional structure of women's football it helps the national teams and that's pretty much the story across Europe um, and that's been the story for England um, it's been steady investment since from the FA but also from clubs since 2012 um, which has culminated in, in now having a team of, of fully fledged professionals who can call football their, their only job or, or their main job mm -hmm. um, and yeah we're benefiting from sort of a long term vision from the Football Association to have a professional league um, I think the Football Association deserves credit for sort of putting criteria in place um, for saying if you want to come into our league, you've got to have certain requirements. And I, and I, I respect that because after playing in the WPS, mm -hmm. um, tons of money from owners, but not a lot of structure and commitment. Okay, interesting. Um, what has Phil Neville done, in your opinion, to, to take things forward for England even more? Because... People were sort of skeptical when he was hired. Yeah, very skeptical. Um, I think people almost felt like he skipped the queue a little bit. Yeah. Um, because, you know, there was female managers who sort of put their work in for a long time and um, who deserved the job. 
I wasn't one of the people that thought that it should be a man or a woman. I think it should be the best person for the job. Um, I don't think it should be gender specific at all. But I, I do, I, I do understand the skepticism around him not having any women's football experience. Mm -hmm. but that's also not a reason to give someone the job because I think what you have seen is that he is very committed to you know understanding the women's game, understanding what players need. Um, I know he studied the US team and the mentality. So, you know, I think he's he's been humble enough to understand that it, that's what it's going to take. It's, it's, you can't just rock up as Phil Neville and, and expect it to happen overnight. I think the main thing for me, obviously being in the team in 2015 under Mark Sampson, is he's completely changed his style of play. Um, the style of play wasn't suited to the players hmm. um, back in 2015. Yes, we got to the semi-final, um, but it was a very ugly way of playing, in my opinion. It was very, you know, front to back, possession football. There wasn't a lot of trust in the in the players' ability. There was a lot of panic in the way we played. Um, a lot of sort of beating, beating other teams up physically. But that can only get you so far. Um, I think Phil Neville has utilised the fact that he has top players in his team, Manchester City players, Arsenal players, Chelsea players, who week in, week out play... Um, a brand of football that is possession orientated, that is counter-attack orientated. So he's done that very quickly, and you can see now that you know England are dominating games in possession. I think Tuesday is going to be the key test. Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's going to be okay. You know, England are in the semi-final. Everyone expected them to be. That was the minimum expectation, mm -hmm. to be honest. So there's, I don't think there's lots of cause for celebration. I think if they beat the US, that's yeah. when we're talking. Yeah. For you covering this World Cup, you've done terrific work on Fox. Thank you. So um, much. Is it still a little weird not to be playing in a World Cup because you played in the last three, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, I'm, I'm only 32, and you know, I'm seeing players playing who are a lot older than me. Um, but my story is different. Um, you know, I. I stopped playing for the national team for reasons that weren't football specific and um is there a short version because i know some of our listeners there, yeah, aren't going to be aware know. of that um yeah so basically um i was playing in the national team up until 2016 um and uh, i was asked to be part of a sort of a confidential review uh, for the national team and um i basically um for want of a better term blew the whistle on on on, on the manager and a lot of things that i felt were happening in happening in the team that weren't, weren't acceptable including sort of racist comments made to to me and other players um and long story short um that confidentially that confidential report then got leaked to the press and um it was just a whole big story and um, since then I haven't played for the national team um, so I think people can make of that what they will um, but that's my story and that's kind of that's the last time I played for the national team was um, six weeks before I was part of that confidential review so um, that's the facts I, I mean I still to this day I don't really know why but ultimately um, I think the most important thing is that I've moved on and mm -hmm. 
I was, I'm very content with my career and the national team. I have 102 caps, which a lot of players don't get to say they mm -hmm. have. Um, and I, I love my job. I love working with Fox. I love commentating and analyzing the game and giving my nuggets on personal experiences and experiences with players. You know, I feel very blessed to be doing that too. So it's you know, it's a, it's a glass full kind of approach. Yeah. Um is doing work in US television in what ways is it similar and different from UK television um yeah I've, I've been thinking about that over the past sort of few weeks like what are the differences I think with Fox it's very structured um so pre-production meetings are sort of an hour long and you have set topics on what you're going to talk about and then everybody decides okay you hit this point another pundit will hit another point um, and so you know pretty much what you're going to say you know who wh what everyone else is going to say you can bounce off um, other pundits and I really like that structure mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of input from the analysts about what to talk about so um, for example we had a situation a few days ago where one of the producers asked you know is it important um, rest you know is rest important at this point of the, of the tournament and you know me and heather o'reilly you know who obviously two-time world cup winner for for usa said well actually adrenaline probably kicks in at this point hmm. and then we, we we scrapped that conversation and so we're able to sort of have an input and, and guide the conversation whereas back home in england it's very much producer-led hmm. um the producers set the, the, the topics and hmm. You decide what to say, um, but mm. there's no real influence on what the topics are going to be. Interesting. Um, and then on top of that, when you're actually on the show live, um, it's very much based on, you know, presenters kind of throwing questions to you. You may not know what that question is going to be. Mm -hmm. Whereas at Fox, I always kind of know when What's Rob coming? Rob Stone's coming to me. So it's just it's just different. And it, but mm. it but it's. There's no, there's no right or wrong. Uh, for me, it's, it's just an additional um, experience that I can add to my, um, you know, punditry experience. I didn't know until right before we started recording here that you have a book coming out, a memoir. Yes, I do. Yeah. And I'm excited to read it. Um, what's in it? How was the experience? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the book is called "They Don't Teach This," um, which is basically. It's about, the book is about um, the lessons in life that you learn only through going through experiences. Mm -hmm. You can't learn it, it's, there's no manual to life, right? You've got to kind of figure it out as you go along. You have to try and take lessons from the very bad experiences and the very good experiences. Um, and that's part of the blessing of, of life, like we're students of life and we kind of have to just keep learning. Um, it's also a bit of a play on sort of the, the idea of me as an educated footballer, you know, this, I went to law school and all that kind of stuff and people know me for that reason. And, you know, it's the idea that, well, I didn't, no one taught me a lot of the stuff I'm talking about in this book. Like I had to figure it out myself. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's the experience of many, many people. Mm -hmm. Um, just being able to make mistakes, fail, succeed and, and sort of grow in that way. So the book is about, um, it's obviously about football, the lessons I've taken from football, but it's also about the lessons I've taken from life. 
it touches on um, uh, identity. You know, me as a British um, Nigerian football player and, and all the sort of issues I had growing up, not really fitting into either, hmm. not necessarily fitting into British you know what what Britishness means and mm. not necessarily being able to relate to Nigerian being Nigerian either and sort of that whole identity journey um, it touches on gender equality and the journey I've been on to now and seeing how the women's fo- women's game has grown um, it celebrates failure it celebrates success it's it's a real kind of all-encompassing book that um, I think transcends football to be honest I'm looking forward to it yeah so it comes out um, it's you can pre-order it now on Amazon oh, okay um, but it, it's published it will come out officially August 29th so okay I'm very excited about it congratulations <laughs> um, you've been playing in Italy yes. um, and I've been surprised as much as anything in this tournament by Italy's success yes me um, too yeah and so I'm curious to know, so based on sort of my study of the history of the women's game, it, Italian women's soccer, they had a professional league for women in the late 60s. It was one really? of the first ones. Wow. Uh, they even allowed women to play. Like, I don't know if everyone was professional, but there were some professionals in that league in, in the 60s. In the 80s, before there even was a FIFA Women's World Cup, Italy hosted four, they called them Mundialitos, which were unofficial World Cups, but there was an interest clearly in Italy in the women's game. When the, when the U.S. women's national team played in its first tournament ever, it was in that Mundialito in, wow. in Italy. You had players like Carolina Maracci who mm-hmm. were legendary. But then it's crazy to me that it went 20 years passed from 99 mm. to 2019 mm. for Italy to even make a women's World Cup. Right. And here they are now getting to the quarterfinals. What happened? Um, I think it goes back to what I said earlier about um, the exponential growth that comes with investment in women's football. Um, I'm not surprised because I see the investment from a Juventus point of standpoint. I see what Fiorentina are doing. I see what AC Milan are doing. Inter Milan are gonna come in this year into the game. Hmm. Roma are gonna come in. These are all institutions in Italy, footballing institutions. I grew up watching Serie A, you mm-hmm. know, I yeah. watched these clubs, um, you know, and a lot of English players, English male players were playing in Italy when I was growing up because it was the best league right. in the world and they were playing for these clubs. So ultimately you have fan bases that go back centuries that are now able to access women's football. You have players that have grown up, want wanting to play for these clubs that are now professionals in these clubs so when you get to the national team it's no longer daunting playing in front of 45,000 people because you've done it mm-hmm. in your league you know we sold out um, Alliance Stadium 39,000 people playing against Fiorentina because it was Juventus Fiorentina hmm. that's what fans wanted to see mm-hmm. so I feel like the professionalism of the game and the investment in Italy has made, um, has just benefited the players and has has just created a different mentality for the players when they put on an Italian shirt. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's the case all over Europe. I think that's why you're seeing pretty much the European Championships versus the USA right now because 
that's where all the money is that's where all the investment is how much longer do you want to keep playing oh that's a sensitive question sorry <laughs> <laughs> um honestly you know i feel very full right now in terms mm. of my footballing career i mm. feel like um i've pretty much achieved everything that i set out to achieve um as, you know aside from winning the world cup and um you know the champions league um i've won everything you know for a big club at chelsea um i've won individual awards you know player of the year i'm playing in italy now i'm learning a new language i've l just won the league with italy and won the double again so there's not much left to do there's not much left to do quite honestly and I, as i said you know i've sort of let go of my international career in a way so i don't think it's gonna be long okay i think because i'm a firm believer that you should always let go when you still got a little bit left in the tank but you shouldn't just play for the sake of playing. I mean, a lot of people say to me, "Yeah, but any, you know, you you don't get you don't get that opportunity back to play, and that's that's right." But I also think, you know, um, if you're just playing and going through the motions, you're stopping somebody else, who's you know got loads of years ahead of them, having their career to play for. Yeah. So, uh, the answer to the question is I don't know, but I I think it's soon. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> Um, the next two years. Um, in terms of, you've got a lot of options, I would think, post playing career. Yeah. If you've got a law degree, I think you could do television, uh, as you've shown. You could, I assume, I don't know if you have an interest in coaching. What, no, like, what do you want to do? Well, my interest is kind of more in um, the administrative side. Mm -hmm. um, so becoming a sporting director or a technical director. Mm -hmm. I just finished my masters, UEFA masters, to um, for international players to kind of learn the ropes on that stuff, on mm -hmm. how to kind of, you know, set a strategy for a club and manage manage uh, managers and manage players and all that kind of recruitment and all that kind of stuff. So that was really super helpful because that gave me a network to tap into. Um, I've also got a legal background, which I think will help the sporting director role. Mm -hmm. But I love the media, so mm -hmm. and I've been doing that for a while now. I've been doing media for about four or five years. Mm -hmm. So I deliberately kind of have set myself up so that I can transition. The transition won't feel like, um, you know, won't feel too daunting. Um, I think a lot of players need to do more of that, like invest in your future career so that when it comes to you stopping playing, it's not going to be as terrifying. <laughs> 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 it will always be a bit terrifying, but it's not going to be as terrifying. So... Um, I think honestly, I'm a firm believer that you can do do it all. Yeah. If if you're allowed to do it all, you can do it all. So, hopefully, sporting director, media analyst, and you know a bit of law. I don't know, maybe. Fantastic. <laughs> well, Anil Luco, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Grant. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Plant Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Lakin Littman and Enya Luco, as well as producer Brandon Nix and everyone at Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Remember, check out Throwback, my podcast series on the origins of the U.S. Women's National Team and the FIFA Women's World Cup. See you next time.